This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 30th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As we head into a holiday, a possibly four-day weekend, depending on your employer's attitude toward a fake workday sandwich in between a bunch of non-work days. So let's see, we will be here July 3rd. Many state prison guards will be on duty July 3rd. And I hope working on that day will also be the perspicacious and insightful talk radio host, Mark Levin, who was invited on the TV show of Sean Hannity. So this was a real meeting of the minds, a true salon for the ages. And they were explaining why President Trump was justified. Hell, more than justified, it would have been a dereliction of duty had he not alerted America to Mika Brzezinski's facelift travails. You attack a man repeatedly who is a proud man, who is an accomplished man, who is a man's man. You attack him personally, you attack him for his looks, you attack him for his genitalia, and at some point, a man's going to stand up. You want him to act presidential, then you have respect for the office of the president. Great argument. It might sound like, but they started it. No, much more complex than that. Respect. You've got to have respect. You've got to give respect to elected officials. That is your role, my role, and your role as a citizen, especially if you're a journalist, I'm a journalist. What we have to do is we have to pay the president respect because it's democracy. That's what we have to do. He's a public official who lives in public housing. He uses government transportation. He's protected by government agents. He utilizes his role in government to enrich himself outside of government. And what this man is owed is respect. And should that respect not be forthcoming on all issues at all times, he is going to lie about a meeting you had and call you crazy and stupid and demean your face. Because there is a binary in this respect deal. Either you give respect or you've got a gross bloody face, you crazy stupid lady. But the more I think about the wisdom contained in that remark, the more I wonder, you know, where did we all go wrong? How did, how did it get to this, Donald and Mika? You could have had it all. And then I realized it was all based on a misunderstanding. I glossed over that other thing Mark Levin said. I was so focused on the respect explanation that I glossed over this. You attack him for his genitalia, and at some point, a man's going to stand up. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I see. That's not what happened. You just misunderstood. When we were making fun of the president's package, we meant his threadbare 18-bullet-point so-called tax reform package that would undo the economy. That's what we meant. Oh, no, 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 no. When we mocked the president's junk, we were talking about his science, his climate change denialism. Oh, I see what's going on here. When we were appalled at the president's shaft, it was in reference to the carrier workers whose job the then-president-elect said he was going to save, even though they just laid off 600 workers and are moving to Mexico. When we belittled the president's Peter, we were talking about Peter Thiel, President Trump's advisor, such a patriot that New Zealand just gave him citizenship after he spent 11 days in that country, though the legal requirement states you got to be there 1,350 days over the last five years. When we made fun 
of the president's member, it was a fool at Mar-a-Lago whose fees have doubled since Trump was sworn into office. When we say the balls on this guy, we meant the hundreds and hundreds of lies the New York Times reported on, continues to report on, continues to insult us as a people. That's what we meant. It's a misunderstanding. Maximum respect. On the show today are spiels and Antan Twig, words that might not make sense to you if you're a first-time listener, but stick around. But first, a podcast you may have heard of if you look at the first or second-ranked podcast in iTunes. They're just done with their third season, and it's a long weekend. Time to binge. Invisibilia. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Is that Lisa? This is. Hi. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a psychology professor at Northeastern University. According to Lisa Barrett, the show that you are listening to right now, Invisibilia, has consistently portrayed emotion and how emotions work incorrectly. But in our defense, the reason why we've been wrong, at least according to Lisa, is because the whole culture is wrong. We think wrong about emotions, where they come from, and how they work. Because the way that we experience the world makes it very, very hard to think right about them. The chart-topping, heart-stopping, knowledge-dropping podcast, Invisibilia, is about the hidden forces that affect our lives. What, gamma rays? No, like psychology and assumption and expectations. And just completed is season three. It is done by the journalists Hannah Rosen and Elise Spiegel, who are friends of mine. And I'm not just telling you this to brag. They're here. Hello, guys. Hey. Hi. Hi. This season you call a concept album, which can be good, like the Who's Quadrophenia, or not. Did you know the guys who did Pac-Man Fever had a whole album of only arcade songs? So that would be the not. I totally knew that. Yeah, I totally knew that. (laughs) The Dig Dug one is off the hizzle. Um, Why? What's, you know, what do you mean by concept (laughs) album? What's the idea of concept album? You know, we realized that all the episodes were connected. We had this idea that we were threading through the episodes. And then our showrunner has a dad who's a rock music producer. So she, one day in a meeting, she was like, this is like a concept album. And then we dorkily were just like, let's make a concept album about concepts. We didn't even realize the joke when she first said it was a concept album. We were like, wait a minute, the whole idea in this season is concepts. So we can make a concept album about concepts and that will make us more cooler than we were if we didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it does. It makes us more cooler. Yeah. And since your show is about, and since your show is somewhat about metacognition, it's uh, it's like a meta-meta concept concept album. Exactly. It's a meta-meta concept album. Yeah. Yeah. So the construction of this was, let's find a bunch of stories, and then you, I think at least you said, you realized there was connective tissue. You didn't cast about it that way. 
It's a little bit in between those two things. I mean, we got fixated on this book, which is in the first episode, which lays out the foundational idea of the concepts in your head and what they're doing to you. And so once we became a little too fixated on this book and it kind of turned our world upside down, some of the things were already in production. Then came the election where it just seemed like, whoa, like everybody's seeing like the same object wildly differently. So they must be seeing from inside their own brain. So like a lot of things came together and we thought, oh, these Stories are telling one single story. And what was that book? How Emotions Are Made. Yeah. And that. <laughs> it, it just like falls flat when you say it. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a really interesting book. It, it's an interesting book. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it as the, the movie Inside Out. But that is, <laughs> that is what hooked me too. And I thought, see, I think that there are all these well done podcasts these days. And if you mm-hmm. have good storytellers and good story, a nice tape and good music, you're going to get 90% of the way there to satisfying an audience. But not for me. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. ask for the intellectual rigor and like, is there a really good idea, a thesis? And there was. Mm-hmm. And it did actually make me think this thinking about thinking. And therefore, mm-hmm. it's so so much more exciting than what I mostly listen to. Uh, is that how no, it worked for nice you? No, that's nice to hear. That is really nice to hear. I mean, Elise and I have been friends for a while. And I think that Elise's radio work and my print work, it both does that. Similarly, it's just like how our it's brains work. It's a thread work. of narrative and, 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 I, and broader ideas. Yeah, I think that basically ev- like that's the way we think anyway. Like neither of us do pure narrative. Neither of us do pure. There's always both of those things. Or we try. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Like, well, I, you, you sometimes do pure narrative. Yeah. And I sometimes do pure narrative. But on the whole, yes, mostly it's a, it, it, it's a weave. Yes. But the thing that both, the thing that interests you both of the pure narrative isn't, and what happened next? It's more of, yeah. and why did that happen? Well, yeah. there's so many good what happened next stories. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the universe is full of great what happened next stories. And as a person who reads primarily novels, I would say I love what happens next. But but somehow it's like my interest wanes unless you're driving towards some like serious uh rethinking or seeing something differently or some idea is in there. Sort of I always feel like you just push and push and push and eventually you'll get there in the what happens next. I thought that the emotions, the two emotions episodes were Mm -hmm. great because it takes a standard notion, a notion that I would say, I don't know, a large percentage of your listeners would subscribe to, which is something like emotions are real. They have to be acknowledged. You can't deny them. You know, you can't fault a person for how he or she feels. And then you kind of, I don't know if the word, I don't know if the hinge word there is fault, but you really examine that idea of not being able to affect how you feel. And so that's what I thought was really exciting and surprising. Yeah, it's like you insert a space between the thing that you thought just kind of arose out of you in some inevitable way. And you're like, oh, wait, it didn't actually happen as this. You know, we like this kind of mechanical metaphors like it, it, it's circuitry and it just, you know, it's it's inevitable. And it, ha- it went up on the circuit and it just came out of my mouth or my brain. But in fact, it's it's not quite like that. Like there's a that wasn't a good explanation. Mm-hmm. You want to try, Elise? It's like I'm trying to explain what the what. The well, trip. it sounds like you're focusing on on this idea that emotions are kind of inevitable reactions and that is the kind of core idea that that this book tries to upend looking yeah. at emotions as reactions rather than kind of pure social constructions and it and it does have political implications i mean you're attracted to it it sounds like you're attracted to it because it's um it seems uh, to take on a sacred cow of some kind. Is that your 
Is that your interest? I, it sounded like I'm an I'm an empiricist, and I enjoy the. I, I've always been told, well, these emotions, which I guess are real, or are they a construct? Uh, uh, different cultures have different words for them and different ways to think about them. And you even talk about one of the cultural differences where they have an emotion that no one else has. So I really wonder. I mean, there's all this received knowledge about it, and I think a lot about it, and it does seem that there's one end. I don't know for most of my life. We've been told to get more sensitive and acknowledge your emotions and you can't Mm -hmm. argue with your emotions. And because they're emotions, they're legitimate. The other side of that coin seems to be, I don't know, like the great Santini yelling, just bottle it up. But now you're showing me a third way, which is, (laughs) which is, well, they're real. But guess what? You could change them. Mm-hmm. You smart. You smart. <laughs> I mean, you can think of what happened at the end of the emotions episode with the trucker is he just reframed right. the narrative. Why don't, tell us, why, don't you, narrative. why don't you tell us? Why don't you give us a thumbnail on that? Okay. So basically the story, the narrative in that show involves a car accident in which a car with a family in it crashes into a truck and a child is killed. One of the child in the family is killed. And the trucker, sort of both in legal terms and on the street, really not his fault, this accident. Like the the father in the car lost control of the car and sort of crossed the median and slammed into the truck. But the trucker comes to believe that he's a child killer. Like he, he, you know, he he had believed that he was this, you know, strong guy in charge of his life, in charge of his truck. But, But he comes to believe that he is at fault, that he should have been able to prevent this accident. And this thought worms its way into his head sort of so thoroughly that he becomes unable to function. It's like PTSD. He can't drive anymore. He can't leave his house. He, he just becomes a dark and different person for many, many months. And so he ends up suing the family for emotional distress. So just the basic facts of the case, if you lay them out that way, you could say, you know, trucker emergence from accident without a single scratch, sues family who lost a child for emotional damages and and wins. wins. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the fact pattern that's alarming in that case. And so what we're trying to get you to think about is, OK, the law has changed in the way it thinks about and takes seriously emotional damages because the law is just a reflection of our culture. And and uh, and we are increasingly taking emotions seriously as signals of real things in the world, which is what you were just talking about. So the Mike. law is the most kind of literal way <clears throat> that, 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 that we can show you, look, we are taking emotions as a certain kind of fact in America. And so what what do we think about that? Is it, is it based on a correct understanding of emotions? Facts. Are they facts? Are they signals of something real in the world? Um, and this is a story about how, and this is a kind of, and this woman developed, a, combined a whole bunch of research, which basically says, no, emotions are not facts. Mm-hmm. They're not inevitable. And that has a huge number of implications for our legal system, for our personal lives, for a whole bunch of things. For our culture. And this guy, you know, in the end, he basically does what she tells us all to do, which is if you're stuck in some place, she, she didn't tell us all to do this. She's not like a self-help person. She's a scientist. But if you're stuck in some place, like you you can tell yourself, okay, this emotion that I'm having, this narrative I've told myself, it's a concept. It's coming from inside my own head, how I was raised, what my family taught me should be. It's not, it's not merely this thing that came from inside me and hijacked me, which is what the literature, the popular literature often talks about, like emotions hijacking you. And that yeah. makes them seem so damn powerful and overwhelming well but actually you know actually they're they're sort of this construct and you can you can you can make a different one which is exactly what he did i mean by the end of the story he has with the help of a psychiatrist told himself a different story about what happened but he still won the case right 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> the law, like, codifies a certain moment in time. That's one of the debates in the law is that it, around emotional damages is, like, emotional damages shift. Unlike, say, like, you lost your leg or something, there is actually an intellectual debate in law schools of, like, what are we supposed to do with the fact that we kind of solidify and codify the emotional damage in a moment when we all know that, like, life is long. It could be different six months from now. That I thought was the most fascinating story. I want to ask you a question bef- about it before I tell you what I found fascinating. Did you know about it because it was this weird legal story that codified that emotions are facts? Or did the psychologist tell you about it to support her theory? No, no. What, what happened was Elise had this, she'd been bubbling around this idea about kind of our, our culture taking emotions more seriously. Our editor sort of found this book. So that was the second marriage. And then Elise felt like we need, a, there must be some legal case because the book does have a chapter about the law. And so then we just called all these torts professors and asked them, okay, what is the most interesting case, the most interesting case that you've seen on a docket or taught to your students? And so we got lots We got, lots we got what? Awesome we got, we got like, about dogs, people suing for, and I actually saw, I actually saw yesterday, there was a judgment, somebody got 1.5 million for the death of their dog, Yeah, emotional. We got a bunch of like great and unexpected ways that the law is treating emotional suffering. Emotional distress. Emotional distress differently in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. I found it so fascinating because it seemed to me that at the point where the law said that the trucker gets some money, even though he walked away unscathed and the little kid died. That would seem to be a moment where you would say, well, that's progress. That's progressive. That's an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of the emotion. And then if you go another however long it's been since then, there's been a corrective to that. And that makes me wonder, is that a pendulum swinging back or is that just veering off into another direction? It doesn't seem to be exactly a pendulum swinging back, pulling back on saying that emotions are real. But it says it's, it's an addendum, right, where it says emotions are real, but they can be corrected. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, you're supposed to feel ambivalently because if he, if he, I mean, let's say he had like really shattered his leg in the accident, right? Let's say he'd had these terrible physical damages. You in your mind would be like, yeah, of course he should, you know, the court should pay him, you know, for nine months of not being able to drive his truck. And so do you really want a world where we say, oh, he just had PTSD, like he shouldn't be paid for that? You don't really want that world. Like right. you want, he couldn't. You want work the for sensitivity of acknowledging that PTSD is a thing, and yet with literally PTSD research, you know, there's research out that shows that maybe it's not as much of a thing as we've been told it was. I think you know what it is. I think that what we are asking for is not that it's not a thing or it doesn't feel the way it feels to him. It's just be honest about where it comes from. Like because the law, like vastly, we don't have this in our story. But if you talk to people who practice this kind of law, yeah. they will tell you that. What's changed in the last 10 years is the kind of army of experts they are required to call in to sort of talk about like this, to talk about emotions as if they are broken arms, like to make it as an exact a science as possible. So you could just literally see the circuitry metaphor come alive inside the courtroom, right? Instead of just being perfectly honest and saying, look, we as a society have decided collectively that we should compensate people in cases where they have tremendous damage. It's just like it doesn't necessarily lead to a different result. Result. It just leads to more honesty in the process. Hannah Rosen, Elise Spiegel, listen to all of season three of Invisibilia. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, you, Mike.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. It's an antantwig, our word for a three-week period from the Old English antantwig. It has been more than three weeks, and also I made up that word. Or perhaps it wasn't me. Perhaps it was Iron Age Dwellers of Scotland, the Picts. It's hard to be sure. I got a lot of reaction to a few of my assertions. First assertion, well, the reaction was because it was wrong. I said Gilad Shalit was captured in Lebanon. Nope, Gaza. Mistook south from north, perhaps in reading from right to left. Perhaps just because I made a mistake. Said Julius Caesar, dies at the end of Julius Caesar. Nope, dies in the middle. The tragedy isn't even Caesar's, you know. Brutus, Cassius, they're the ones who die at the end of that play. Oh, damn. Spoiler, spoiler, and spoiler. Though those events did take place over 2,000 years ago, so the actuarial tables indicate they'd all be dead by now. Many people wrote in to push back on a couple of opinions that I stated. I said, as of now, day 160-ish of the Trump presidency, that Trump's been a better president so far, just on what he's done, than George W. Bush. Whoa, whoa, whoa! People didn't like that. But listen, until Trump kills over 4,000 Americans and wounds over 32,000 in a war of choice, none of his misdeeds compare to Bush's. Now, you see how I said that there, that Bush, George W. Bush killed 4,000? Bobby Strother thought it necessary to tweet me at Pesca, me, Pesca, am I, my Twitter handle. Pretty sure it was enemy combatants, not W, who killed all those troops in Iraq. Trump is not better than W. Come on. Yes, I I actually, thanks for sending me straight, Bobby. I actually thought George W. Bush had embedded with the Bathists and was working on assembling IEDs in a Baghdad basement. No, I know how it works. I also know that Trump wasn't actually sitting on the bed next to the 400-pound fat guy I was trying to hack into the DNC. Some people made the point when I was comparing Trump to Bush and say, Trump's better. They were saying, well, let's compare them at this exact point in their presidency. And that seems okay. I mean, Trump has done a lot wrong. But remember, at this point 
in his presidency. What was George W. Bush doing? The answer is he was doing nothing about Osama bin Laden. We are one month and one week from the 16th anniversary of bin Laden determined to strike the United States. I think Trump is much, much worse as a person, but in terms of actual destructiveness, it's not comparable. Oh, a lot of reaction on this one. This is my interview with writer Sachi Cole. So I'll give you some background. We talked about her use of Twitter, where she got some disgusting comments aimed at her, threatening comments. And the backstory was she was a, an editor at BuzzFeed Canada trying to uh, solicit submissions. And she wrote, at BuzzFeed Canada, would particularly like to hear from you if you are not white and not male. And then a few minutes later, she wrote, and if you are a white man upset that we are looking mostly for non-white men, I don't care about you. Go write for McLean's. I'll play a little clip of the interview and uh, to set it up, keep that in mind. And then I told Sachi about this time that I was up for an award and someone tweeted about the nominees for that award. Great. Let's all vote for the non-white men. So that's what you need to know when you listen to this part. If you expect for people to pat you on the back for that opinion, you are saying let's discriminate against this class of people because they have had it so good and have been so privileged for years. And I will not dispute the second part, but I will say <laughs> let's discriminate against this class of people never feels good to that class. But you, of people. you're looking at it as discrimination and I'm looking at it as sort of holding other people up. What could benefit all of us the most? Probably not the most alienating tones. That's what I would say. Okay. Yeah, I don't agree with you. Why not? Because I don't because I think if standing around and like trying to be friendly and trying to be cool with everybody worked, it would have worked by now. I don't think but don't so. you think people no, of color people totally of color have spent people had opinions, which is great. This is this is my whole point of doing interviews that are uncomfortable. It's not to have an argument to have an argument or to create heat. It's just because I especially like disagreements where there's overlapping agreement on most things, but certain points there isn't. And sometimes with those points that aren't, it's fine to go hard at each other. I really hope there were no ill feelings between us personally, but some listeners took issue and some really took issue. And one tack that I noticed is that people would tweet to me or write to me and told me I said things that I didn't say, or more often, I said things that were like other things and those other things were bad. Here is a tweet. Temper your tone is pretty much what you said in the interview. A step down the road toward don't talk about this issue. Well, I didn't say the first thing, so I don't know how much then it's a step down towards the second thing. And then I had a uh, listener said she's no longer listening to the gist. Uh, I do enjoy most Slate podcasts, but I'm done with at Pescami and Slate gist. Mike needs, if not racism 101, then racism 102. He pushes back more on people of color and race issues than on others. He told Sachi Cole that anti-white sentiment is the same as anti-POC people of color sentiment. Like, that didn't happen. That's a little annoying. You cannot listen if, if it upsets you or you vehemently disagree or if you think I'm a racist. Definitely don't listen. But it's all this stuff that I didn't say. Like, here's another one. I'm literally disappointed that someone didn't want you to win an award because of who slash what you are and you called it aggressive sounds a lot like uppity. By the way, a lot of the reaction agreed with me. That's not my major point. Or even if it disagreed, I think it was really constructive. I am just calling out this little bit of a trend where it's saying I said these things I didn't say or things that sound like things I didn't say. I'll be charitable. I've been thinking about this. Why would people say that? Maybe it's because Twitter only has 140 characters. 
or maybe there's some value to this. Like uh, these people are pointing out, well, we both know that calling someone uppity is a code word. And so you should realize that calling someone aggressive is akin to that. And maybe you want to rethink that. All right, fine. I take all your advice in stride. I now have to name the lobsters of the Antan Twig. The lobsters of the Antan Twig are the best tweeters or Facebook users or listeners or emailers who interacted with the gist in some way. The runner-up lobster is Patrick Miller, who disagreed with me when I was talking about women and Uber and how Uber is going to put out of business a lot of male truck drivers. And I won't get into the long, long email he wrote, but this is why I'm naming him. A lot of people write me excellent emails. This is why I'm naming him runner-up Lopstar. He cited his sources. His email ended with links to four studies that if I wanted to, I could delve into, I could learn. I just salute and appreciate the depth of scholarship involved. Thank you. But as I said, Mr. Miller disagreed with me. I'm giving the Lopstar of the Antan Twig to someone who agreed. This is in reference to the protesters who interrupted Julius Caesar chanting, Goebbels would be proud, Goebbels would be proud. I said, is that even iambic pentameter? Daniel Slosberg on Facebook writes in, not iambic pentameter, it's catalectic trochaic trimeter. Catalectic trochaic trimeter. Trochaic appears in Shakespeare quite often. For instance, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn, and cauldron bubble. Goebbels would be proud. Goebbels will be proud. Double, double, toil and trouble. He goes on to note that it shows up in The Simpsons. Lisa is a nut. She has a rubber butt. Every time she turns around, it goes putt-putt. I believe Bart originally said that about Skinner, not Lisa, but it doesn't matter. Thank you for your erudition. Daniel Slosberg, you are the lobster of the Antantwick. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Chris Brube, proud Canadian, Canada. It's the sesquicentennial way to go. Mary Wilson, just producer's country, was founded a wee bit before that. In fact, it's nine years to the Sester Centennial, also known as the Bicenquinquagenary. Yeah, that's what it's known as. Steve Lichtai does not believe in the concept of Bicenquinquagenary. He believes all anniversaries are on a continuum. He believes in centennial fluidity. The gist. I look forward to the day, and I don't know if I'll see it, when this great nation celebrates its tricentenary. And it looks back to uh, the quinquagenary and says, why didn't that guy just lay off Twitter? Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.